What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Are leftists pushing their social, what is it? Social, sexual, sexual ethics. ethics on children? Right. Are leftist teachers pushing their, pushing their sexual Correct. ethics on children? The, uh, the, uh, the accusation is that leftist public school teachers are doing this. Yay or nay? Yay. Yay. Um, well, I mean, this is kind of a strange question because, I mean, almost any teacher is going to push some sexual mores on kids, right? I know when I was in school and I was receiving sex education, I was told about the value of consent and the value of abstinence and safe sex and all of these things. So I guess the question is going to be, are particularly leftist public school teachers pushing their specifically like controversially left-wing sexual mores on children? And then with respect to that question, I mean, it's like, yeah, probably some of them are, probably others aren't. If we want to investigate how widespread it is a phenomena for this to happen. I would probably just have to see some like actual evidence. I'm probably not going to be convinced by anecdotes or videos you saw from libs of TikTok. So um, yeah, that's probably how I would approach this question. Um, so uh, I tend to agree with Malfi on this. Um, uh, I don't think that necessarily leftist school teachers are intentionally pushing their uh, sexual morals or ethics on children. I do think that there is, to some extent, always going to be some uh, morals that will be carried on to students, especially if majority of the teachers lean a certain way and um, children look up to their teachers. There is going to be, without a doubt, um, children who look up and, and start forming their values based on what their teachers value. Um, but, I mean, I think we can say the same thing about uh, right-wing uh, teachers, right-wing um, policies in schools uh, we've seen in the past and we see currently um, that also enforce a specific type of ethics on children. 
I, I would say I agree more with, what's his name, Maldi? Maldi, yeah. <laughs> okay, I agree more with him. Uh, I think it, it, it's nice that you kind of specified the question. Um, but at the same time, I, I disagree with the fact that this isn't happening consistently around the states. Like I've seen it in personal, uh, personal experiences with my, with my goddaughter, with my other best friend's daughter. Uh, most of their friends are like pansexual, bisexual, or they think of, you know, when we were, when I was in school, we didn't even know what, pansexual wasn't even a thing, right? It was just bisexual, gay, or gay, or lesbian, or, or straight. And I feel like it's just become increasingly popular. I would say it's interesting to say that you even see it among specific groups of kids, right? If you have one kid that's trans or identifying as queer or non-binary, the rest of them around them will, will, are more likely to identify the same way. And I think that also goes hand in hand with the teachers and how they're presenting it to their classes as well. Can I jump in really quick on that? Please, please. Um, yeah, so one thing is like, the reason I said I'm probably not gonna be convinced by anecdotes is just, I mean, the main problem is gonna be like, one, there are certain psychological biases, right? Like if you have like a certain political bias, um, the types of personal experiences that you're gonna take note of are gonna be skewed in the direction of your political bias. So that's one problem with like the anecdote thing. Another problem is just like a sample size problem, right? Like the amount of kids in schools that you have experience with is so small relative to the amount of schools and kids that there are that there's very little guarantee that your experiences are at all gonna be representative of the broader picture. You also mentioned how, um, you know, one of your data points is like there's a lot of kids who, you know, used to, like it used to be the case that almost nobody knew what pansexual was and so on, but now everyone does. But it, it just seems like an open question to me whether that's a factor of teachers teaching this to kids or whether it's just kids talking amongst themselves, having more access to social media. I think um, it's definitely both, personally. Sure, it could be. Yeah, I think it's both. I, I'm not gonna blame the teachers completely, of course. In fact, I would, I would say it's probably more social media. I think the proportion is probably just an open empirical question. I don't see any reason to take a super strong stance one way or the other. I mean, we could take it beyond what the individual teachers are doing here and there, and you could look at the curriculums across the country. Like, there has been a push, and it's largely being pushed by the left-wing political party in this country, to introduce more quote-unquote LGBT-friendly materials into our public schools. Now, like, you can look at an individual video of a cringy teacher from Libs of TikTok saying she wants her students to pledge allegiance to the LGBT flag, or you could look at different books that are being introduced at the kindergarten level that discuss transgender. There's one about a crayon. I don't know the specifics of it because I can't read books, but they are out there. They do exist. So this is being introduced on a curriculum-wide level. And the funny thing is, is as we progress through this conversation on this topic, they'll go from saying, well, it's not really happening, there's not really those data points, and then at a certain point, they'll explain why they're in favor of it and why it's a good thing. So yeah, it is happening, it's obvious. It's not just the teachers, it's at the curriculum level, and you know, there is reason to be concerned. Well, what I said was that I'm not sure how representative this is of the broader picture. Do you have any, sure you can say that there are curriculums that have introduced LGBT friendly education. Do you have any specific evidence on like what proportion of districts or what proportion of schools have done this? So the state of California recently had- Well, but that's giving us an example of a specific place doesn't really answer my question, right? You're talking about nationwide? Do, I know how many do you have any evidence yeah. regarding the proportions of districts or schools that have done this? 
So the state of California introduced a statewide curriculum. So that would be all of the districts within the state of California. Sure, that's a state, yeah. So, and in that proposal, which was very controversial due to a bunch of different reasons, most of it involving like racial politics in the schools, they want to introduce different LGBT figures and specific political like bias points about it, about how Gavin Newsom stood up and you know he's the sitting governor of California at the time that this was introduced. He was running for uh, governor of governor, governor of California, and it would talk about how he fought for people's rights to marry. Now, like you could say, Gavin uh, Gavin Newsom was in favor of gay marriage when he was the mayor of San Francisco. That's fine, but it is a little weird to see essentially the same exact verbatim, word for word, campaign points for Gavin Newsom specifically around LGBT issues in the state of California's history textbooks, specifically in the portions that are about. LGBT history. So yeah, you have all of this stuff being introduced at a statewide level. Like it's not just in California, we've seen it in other states and there's isolated school districts across the country that also have this being introduced or already implemented. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense though from a, like if we're going over the history of specific political movements or specific political campaigns, it makes sense to cover those things. If that was part of his campaign, it makes no sense why, like why would we exclude that, right? And we can make the same argument about um, more conservative like ideologies being pushed. Um, like for example, um, like among the 10 states that have the highest rates of teen pregnancy, um, five of those states are, um, are states without mandated sex education. Um, also, there are, um, I believe it's, there, there are states that um, do abstinence only sex education and a lot of those states end up having higher rates of, um, of teen pregnancy um, and, and teenagers giving live birth to children. So I don't think- Do you think, think that could also possibly be an issue? I mean, first of all, the, the question I believe was about LGBT stuff, right? Basically, was indoctrination sexuality not about sexual education in general? It could be either. Okay, well, that, to me, they're two different issues. I think if you're gonna talk about sexual identity and sexuality, uh, so, so sexual identity and sexual orientation, because sexuality is a different thing. I would say that's a very different issue and a very different education that has to go into play, it come, that comes into play when you're talking about like abstinence and STIs and stuff like right. that and how to but, get pregnant. Part of that is, though, in, in sex education, part of this huge pushback is because we've introduced LGBT-friendly sex education, right? So a lot of people have a problem with that. Um, I feel like I would rather have comprehensive, age-appropriate sex education than no sex education, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah. We, I think you and I agree on most yeah. issues, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I, I think another issue, <laughs> this is going to sound like it's going to come from left field, pun intended, maybe, but... I think a big issue with, with not necessarily teen pregnancy in this case, but with the increase of STIs, with the increase, just a, it's a lot of, a lot of different issues across the, across the board right now. I think that's because we're, not that you have to be, uh, not that you have to sex shame, but it's almost like we opened it up too much. And there's like no fair critiques at all anymore. So yeah, I could, I could maybe understand that maybe we've gone in the other direction of like, um, be responsible with who you have sex with, be responsible in the ways that you have sex, and now we've kind of entered this kind of weird realm where it's like, uh, don't uh, judge anybody for anything that they're doing, right? Um, right, you can't even, like, yeah. like the whole, even if like, it's like, risky like the whole, behavior. It's, exactly, exactly, it's, it's like the like, whole, like objectively the whole clean, risky. like you're not supposed to say, I'm yeah. clean, which yeah. I get, but yeah. <laughs> sometimes 
it's a good thing to be judgmental in that way. Yeah, sometimes right? you, you need to be, be able to objectively say, like, this is risky behavior. You shouldn't engage in risky behavior. Yeah, and yeah. I, feel like, I feel like the left has, and, and we'll be talking about teachers in general, I feel like they've gone too far left in that case. Well, I don't know that I would blame that on teachers, more so that I would blame that more on society. Like, yeah, in society, hookup yeah, yeah, culture. Absolutely. You know? yeah, yeah. I feel like it's all tied yeah. together. I feel like yeah. teachers wouldn't be doing this unless they felt society was going to empower them in doing so. Yeah. I actually agree with the point that you made that this is two different issues because the idea was LGBT indoctrination in public schools and then we converted to, oh, well, sometimes abstinence only leads to uh, that's higher also rates of teen idea. pregnancy. But Those are two different issues with two different it, consequences. Right, but it, we're talking about left-wing like uh, uh, sexual ethics being pushed in uh, in schools. I think it's fair to bring up right-wing uh, uh, sexual ethics being pushed in schools. But that's not, a, that's not a refutation of the point. That's a, hey, look over here. Well, no, I mean, it's uh, saying, you know, it's saying, I think. If I saw a car think, crash and you pointed to a train accident, that didn't mean the car right, crash didn't The reason happen. why I'm bringing it up is because I'm I while there may be the pushing of left-wing sexual ethics or left-wing sexual ethics in schools, um, I think it's fair to say that we we can see the same thing happening in the right. Maybe we should we should be um, approaching this from a much more um, unbiased view, right? I, I could agree with you guys on that. So. I, I, I yeah, I agree, I, mean, with, I agree with that. I think I uh, just cut you off. Sorry. Uh, I think I feel like sex education in general should be less about sexual orientation and sexual identity and more about health. And I feel like if we if we bring it to that, if we if we push it in that sense, it becomes just a human rights issue and not a left versus right thing. Well, but the problem is, of course, uh, if you're trying to push, um, if you're trying to encourage sexual health, then the question arises: Okay, well, do we want to encourage sexual health for, say, LGBT students as well, and teach uh, about their specific? Um, uh, their I, specific to, advice that the they need in terms of having safe sex, and then, I, I then it turns into a political yeah, of course, question. Being, yeah, yeah um, the responsible thing is to teach uh, those students. Um, there's a very, yeah. there's a very big difference though between teaching kids about all about 85 genders versus what's going to sure. happen when you have penis and butthole yeah. sex. I think, <laughs> you know I, I mean? think, like, yeah, I, I can agree with you. Like teaching about very 80, big difference. 85 <laughs> genders is kind of overboard to me as well. Um, Which is not a just made up number, by the way. I think there's like 83 legal genders in New York City. Uh, that is a lot of genders, and yeah. I like drag queen is can a gender barely now. remember people's names. So if you so. have it, exactly, like you have, you have sex with a drag <laughs> yeah. queen, is it going to be different? Any different? No, a penis is in a bubble. I mean, is is going to is going to amount to different risks? Yeah, there's than different a penis risks. In a vagina. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important to again have age appropriate sex education too, because a lot of children um, who grow up without sex education um, uh, are not aware of the ways that they're they can or are being abused until they're Absolutely. much older. I think, yeah. and I think that's more of a consensual education thing than, yeah. than sexual identity again. Yeah, but I would say that, that, you know, that's an example of like a right-wing um, sexual ethics uh, actually being a hindrance to the well-being of some children. So that's Which an shouldn't interesting be a right-wing issue. That should just be, yeah. a, again, a human rights yeah, issue. Usually, usually in this case, yeah. in this day and age, usually women's issues. I yeah. wanted to get on, in on that as well because um, Sean had mentioned the California um, LGBT-friendly curriculum. Um, I'm kind of curious if you think that the states which explicitly ban um, discussion of same-sex relationships and sex education, are those right-wing? Uh, what states are those Pushing their sexual mores on children? What states would they be? 
would, um, those, would those be? And also, like, again, you keep bringing up sex education. I'm fine with sex education. When your kid turns 13 and they go to a health class and they throw a bunch of condos at them, they tell them to go have fun, be safe and all that, totally on board with that. What I was talking about specifically and what I thought the prompt was about specifically was the fact that we're using other forms of the school besides sex education to try to push left-wing indoctrination on LGBT issues, which is not even trans which is issues. not even just LGBT issues anymore. Like every, every single classroom, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Almost every single classroom that I've seen, at least on these, and it doesn't have to be libs of TikTok. You can just go on TikTok and these individual teachers' pages. If they have an LGBT flag, the ugly one, they'll also have Black Lives Matter, and they'll also yeah. have communist stuff, and they'll also have it, it's it's. Also, just to answer your question, Arizona for a while had a, a law that banned uh, discussion of AIDS that quote unquote promoted a homosexual lifestyle. Do you think that's like an example of- AIDS, you said? They put it, yeah, or AIDS? Yeah, a discussion of AIDS, AIDS. yeah. AIDS, mm -hmm. okay. A discussion of AIDS, like the disease? Yes. Oh. Yeah, you should, if you're in a health class, you just should discuss AIDS. You should, shouldn't yeah. discuss you AIDS? You should, yeah. Okay. Of course. Well they, well, they ban discussion of AIDS that quote unquote promoted a homosexual lifestyle. I'm just asking if you think that that's like an example of. I think that's just incorrect in general. When did that not law that come that's from? wrong or like, right. I mean, it's just not I wouldn't be in favor of that. that it's not from factual. Is you saying that No, no, California I'm, saying, I'm saying when was that repealed? Because I'm not in favor of that to answer your question. But well, like, I didn't well, ask the is that from Is that from like the AIDS, like well, loss, the AIDS panic? Right, no, this right, was, this was, uh, was repressed pretty, re this was uh, addressed pretty yeah, recently. Yeah, and still currently, you can still see that, um, that there are states without mandated sex education. Um, uh, Arizona, Mississippi, Texas, Florida, and Arkansas. Um, and these are uh, states with high teen pregnancy rates. So I agree with you yeah. there. I think I think sex, again, it's sex education to me is a very different. It's a very different idea than than teaching somebody about the eighty-seven genders and confusing them. Well, and, yeah, and I don't them think going on puberty blockers. At I don't 12, think BDSM should be anywhere in the school. BDSM is is to, to me that's kink and fetish more than it is yeah. sex education. Sex education should yeah. be what I was taught when I was eleven, not thirteen. I don't know, New York City, we we got. We got into it earlier, I guess, but there were different levels for me. Um, I remember at 10 and 11, it was like um, we learned about puberty. We learned about like the typical ways that people may have sex. That was probably the most traumatizing part for me. I, I, <laughs> and as then far as I'm that, concerned, uh, yeah. This, this might be a good point. Yeah. Uh, we have so many prompts. Oh, we have questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one's a little bit more specific, too, because that one was uh, pretty broad. So this one is, is it acceptable for kids to be at drag shows? Depends what the drag show is. I mean, the videos that we've seen online, 99% of the time are of drag, drag queens with their either real tits or fake tits, because there are some trans women that identify as drag queens or tr drag queens that identify as trans women with their tits hanging out. Do I think that's appropriate? There's a very fine line with that too, because in New York City alone, uh, and I think San Francisco as well actually, you're allowed to walk around topless. Are breasts inherently sexual? No. But when you are dancing sexually, they become sexual. And I don't think a child should be in that environment. And I also think everybody knows that's at least in the LGBT community, there's a few, few people here. Most people that attend drag shows, at least in, in the back, uh, are, are usually doing some kind of, you know, <laughs> coke, drugs, other stuff. This is, this is not a unknown, unknown thing in the gay community. We know that this is what happens in the background. And it, funnily enough, I have the same lawyer that, what was his name? Not, uh, not Dylan Mulvaney, <laughs> obviously that's a new guy. Um, one, of the, one of the young child drag queens 
Uh, who's, who's oh, Desmond based? is amazing. Desmond, yes. I was like, D Dylan? No, Desmond. Yeah, we have the same lawyer, so that's interesting. But dancing sexually is very different than a child going to a show where a queen is simply lip-singing a song, lip-singing to Whitney. Like, to me, that would be fine, as long as like they're with their parents, there's no alcohol and drugs like close to them. Fine, go, sh go see a queen. Go hear a queen. Read Drag Queen Story Hour. That's, I don't think that's what the majority of non-leftist people are arguing. Yeah, I would say in general, no, but I'm sure you can like concoct a drag show that's like totally fam family friendly. That right, would be it depends. Fine. It depends fine. what it is. But in general, it would be no, based on what I've seen. Right, because um, the majority of them are sexually. Yeah, I, I would say that um, I, I'm going to have the same standards as I would for like cis women uh, in their right. performance shows. Right. Right. Um, I have no problem with uh, children going and to Disney World and seeing uh, Disney princesses uh, perform for them. Uh, but I would have problems with them going to a strip club and seeing a woman strip. Absolutely. So I think that if, as long as we uh, hold that same standard for drag queens and the drag queens are... Um, Which is actual equality, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that drag queens, uh, you know, reading a story dressed as a princess, no problem with that, uh, on, on my, uh, in, in my opinion. Yeah, so I'm going to agree with pretty much everyone here, except I'm going to slightly diverge from... Um, uh, Sean and Ariel in the sense that like I'm just gonna say that a drag show is not like one univocal thing There are many different types of drag shows and the contents of different drag shows. I imagine vi uh, Very pretty wildly. Um, I think that some drag shows are obviously going to showcase some sort of sexual content Or there might be drugs or alcohol present in which case children obviously shouldn't be allowed into them And other drag shows are likely completely inoffensive and should be fine for children to uh, offend if the implicit question is um, are most drag shows fine for children to attend, or are drag shows in general fine for children to attend, um, which um, Ariel and Sean both said no to. Um, that I'm not sure. That just, again, seems like an open empirical question. If we want to know what proportion of drag shows actually uh, contain explicit content and are therefore inappropriate to children, I would just need to see some like data on that, some literature on that. I'm not, I, I'm not familiar with any. Um, and again, in this case, I'm also not going to be persuaded by like anecdotes or libs of TikTok videos. I mean, I kind of agree with him. I, I think it's it comes down to specifics in this case. It does. I mean, yeah. it seems like uh, pointless. Like, let's do a study and figure out what percentage are sexual. I'm just saying, in general, these are events that happen at bars. Are you? Are you Typically, gay? they're age inappropriate what? for children, but there uh, could no. be some okay. that would be fine. Like, I can tell you from the one gay person on this panel, most of them are sexual. Yeah, and no, I've, I've okay. been to a few. Well, I mean, again, but yeah, there's going to be a the... few shows myself. Most of them yeah. are. Sure. Um, yeah, and if they're happening at a nightclub, definitely, like you'll see them take their top off and stuff like that. But if it's happening at a school library or, or in some, it's just a guy dressed in a That's princess fine. outfit. Yeah, and, and Ariel, no problem. The, yeah. the thing is, right? Like, I imagine I totally don't disbelieve you that most of the drag shows you've been to have been sexual. But you probably also, for good reason, because you're not a kid. The ones, the drag sh uh, shows that you go to probably aren't the ones targeted for kids. No, I've also know, so. traveled literally throughout the entire United States, and I've been to a ton of pride parades, and I've seen drag shows. And I don't say that in quotes, but drag shows that are drag mm -hmm. shows that are not sexual, mm -hmm. uh, where there, where I was fine with them. There were yeah. a lot of drag queen uh, story hours at pride parades yeah. and such, and I was fine. Mm -hmm. I just walked by and I was like, okay, yeah. whatever. Yeah, it kind of uh, goes back to that whole, um, even the kink at pride discussion, right? Um, I think, uh, you know, obviously a daytime event. Uh, you want you want an LGBTQ event to be family friendly, so you would want children to be able to attend that. And then when 
night falls then there's a very easy that. answer to yeah. that yeah, yeah. I, I i went to world pride in madrid in 2017 yeah and i think they did it best they had a family-friendly pride event in the day and then at nighttime everyone got slutty yeah. and i thought it was great yeah i really do i thought it was i was i thought it was really well done you want to ask a question Kat? yeah why is it so important that children attend drag shows when they shouldn't see a movie like the hangover like the what the what what movie the hangover or awesome the hangover movie. Any any rated R movie. Why is it so important? Because okay, okay. I don't think it's important that children attend drag shows. I think it's important that children are culturally diverse and see different ways of being. Uh, I don't think. I think that's a very different thing than than to say children should be sexualized. And also the question kind of you're kind of begging the question, right? Because you're saying why should children be allowed to go to drag shows but not R-rated movies? When of course that assumes that drag shows involve content that's like that's R-rated and the right. whole well, question that's in contention <laughs> is, that's why it's rated. do all drag shows involve these kinds of R-rated content? And I'm saying I don't know, right? right. Yeah, and I I'll also think that um, uh, um, the hangover, you know, you can't really, you can't really, it's really going to come up to be an individual parent in that, in that kind of case, right? Whether they allow them to see R-rated movies, um, obviously, some kids are just going to see them, um, but yeah, it's just going to come up to the individual parent on that uh, at that point. So, and I would argue also that like drag shows that are of an adult nature are inherently going to be more personal because you're in person. You know, you're in person, you're up close with somebody. So, yeah. absolutely. Point the uh, point to move to the next prompt. Should minors be allowed to use HRT hormone replacement therapy or to transition at all? I don't see what their job has to do with it. I mean, just because they work in a coal mine doesn't mean we should make decisions about their medical treatment. I don't know, what do you guys think? So I mean, uh, this gets kind of tricky because this is a, a, like sort of an empirical topic and I don't want to like be that guy who like cites a million studies and then declares victory when you don't have like on the spot rebuttals to them. Please, um, if you have studies, mention them. So I'll just say what my read of the empirical evidence is. If we want to get into it, we can. Basically, um, there seems to be some evidence showing that transitioning through puberty blockers and HRT can make the mental health better for some set of trans youth. Um, there are also, of course, uncertainties and potential adverse effects associated with these treatments like there is with almost any drug. Correct and um, correct. With respect to puberty blockers, I know the main worry is like bone density and with respect to hormone therapy, there are concerns regarding like infertility, increases in some metabolic, uh, metabolic parameters, although the effects for that haven't been shown to be clinically significant. Um, and so on. Uh, of course, there are ways of mitigating these. So like you can do vitamin D and cal calcium supplements and plyometrics for bone density. You can provide more fertility counseling and preservation services for the fertility thing and so on. Um, but I mean, look, uh, these are medical treatments with benefits and drawbacks like almost any medication. Uh, and I'm more comfortable letting medical professionals weigh the costs and benefits of these treatments on an individual basis, <clears throat> as opposed to letting politicians who are looking for culture war points make blanket decisions Fantastic for the entire point. medical uh, I think community. that's a great point. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that at the end of the day, this should be a decision that's made uh, between parents, a patient, and the doctor. And I think uh, the more we get involved in a doctor or a healthcare prof professional's decisions, uh, the worse it is generally for outcomes. Um, there are examples of high-risk medications that we do prescribe to people under 18. Uh, for example, Accutane is a great example of a medication that we prescribe to girls under 18, which has a very high risk of birth defects. Um, but we highly regulate 
the prescribing of that medication, and I think we should do the same thing that we do for for um, for like uh, puberty blockers, right? So Accutane, um, uh, what a lot of gynecologists will do, or not gynecologists, what a lot of dermatologists who are prescribing it will do is they will have the person they're prescribing it to go see a gynecologist, uh, get on at least one, you know, get on a birth control method, and then they have to sign a waiver that anytime that they have intercourse that they will be on at least two methods of birth control. Um, and so that that's like a, you know, I think that's a pretty comprehensive way of m mitigating risks. Um, you know, you explain that this can affect your fertility, this can affect your, um, if you get pregnant, you will have children with birth defects. Um, so if we can do that for something like Accutane, which I would say is a much more uh, like, you know, superficial thing, um, I, I think we can do that for people who are having gender dysphoria, so. Yeah, I'm gonna say no as my serious answer since uh, I didn't know that was the way the whole panel was gonna go. Uh, yeah, for, for puberty blockers for kids, um, from what I can see from some of the research, I don't have it in front of me, most kids does like either grow out or they get locked into being like a transgender person once they hit puberty. So if yes. you stop them from going into puberty, they then they'll know. never hit that actual point. Also, like not to get too like gross or anything like that, but from what I learned, uh, it going through the male puberty actually gives you more material if to you work do with. want to transition later Dash on. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't even see how from the pro trans side, the puberty blockers make sense. And right. like the bone density thing, yeah, that is a side effect that you could have. And people have tried using puberty blockers for off-label uses. The original purpose of this and what people often cite is the research that says it's safe is if your kid goes into puberty when they're eight years old and you delay it until they turn the age that they're supposed to go into puberty. I don't know anything about kids, so maybe it's 25, I don't know. Um, so that you know has minor side effects compared to the side effects of going into puberty when you're like eight years old. But like parents have used these off-label to make their kids grow taller and it's resulted in like cracks and like weakening of their bones. So like I don't know if we should necessarily do this for cosmetic purposes outside of the original parameters of what this medication was designed for. So I don't think it's a great idea. It's not my favorite thing. Um, I wouldn't be on board with it. And I would just ask yourself, if you think that children should be able to make these decisions at this young age, then why do you think it's not legal to tattoo your child or the serve drink. your child alcohol or all these other things that we put limits on children from doing that are far less damaging overall than altering their body chemistry? Well, for sure, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to dispute you on that. There are going to be some um, side effects of these medications. But what I would say is that, again, we do prescribe things that have side effects all the time to people who are under 18, and we do it for people who are not suicidal, right? Um, uh, we do it for Accutane, which is for acne, right? Um, and and uh, we do it for um, plenty of other things as well. Um, so I think, I think it's important that we have a high standard uh, for prescribing. That I think that's going to be key. I think we should have a high standard. We should have a whole bunch of regulations. Um, doctors should have a standard of care that they go through, just like they do with Accutane, where they get um, women on birth control pills and make them sign a waiver that they're going to always use two methods of birth control. Um, and they do similar things uh, for things like IUDs. A lot of gynecologists will not uh, insert an IUD in a woman unless she is either one over the age of 30 or two uh, has had children before because of the risk to her fertility. Um, and uh, and it, you know, it, it can cause um, infertility if, if uh, 
things go wrong. So um, I don't see, uh, like I'm not saying prescribe puberty blockers willy-nilly. I'm not saying uh, prescribe HRT willy-nilly. Um, I think it needs to be Well, do you, do you generally believe, do you, do you genuinely believe we should have like gender affirming care as the standard? Um, so I think, uh, I think basically what puberty blockers are, are for is to, you know, give people that space. Um, and uh, a lot of the times, you know, if a child changes their mind uh, after being on puberty blockers, that, you know, sometimes they'll age out of it and they'll, and they'll kind of change their mind and it gives them that space to. I'm not saying that, again, I'm not saying that willy-nilly prescribe it. No, I'm but, not saying you are, but yeah. I'm saying do you think that like, the model should be gender-affirming care? For, well, it depends on the patient, right? Yeah. Like there are certain, um, there are actually certain indications that clinicians can look at. So for example, you can ask a child, um, you can have a child answer certain questions. If the child says they wish they were the, under, the other gender, they're less likely to persist as being trans. If they say they are the other gender, they're more likely to persist as being trans. Um, the amount of same-sex friends that, that's that the That's also tricky because there are literal like chat rooms where these kids go into. Sure. But, on like Discord. Yeah, <laughs> and, sure. And, and, and they're told by other trans people like Eli Ehrlich what they have to say in order to make sure that they get treated as a trans person. Yeah, the reason I bring up the, the gender affirming care as the standard is because there's a push that you know physicians should be gender affirming. I think Canada has a law, maybe uh, their law is with sexual orientation, so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, where you have to affirm like, be, and it's actually criminally punishable if you don't. So if you like want to talk about the standard of care and not prescribing willy-nilly, that's one thing when you're talking about acne. Like either the kid has acne on their face or they don't, and it's untreatable through other methods or it isn't. But if we're talking about whether or not this person's feelings are legitimate, or it's a situation a where, thing, right. yeah, where like a kid thinks he's a ninja turtle, <clears throat> then your model of care is going to determine the standards to which you prescribe that. So if you're saying right. affirm, affirm, affirm then you're not going to get the checks and balances that you would need. And again, it's not as the, objective. The truth, as the truth is they have been affirming for quite quite a long time now, at least three, four, five years. Which is why I which, bring it up. Well, right, yeah. which, is, which is long enough, to, in my opinion, to, to make an a, not an assumption, a correct judgment on how this is going. And right now, I believe the D-Trans Reddit group is over like uh, 45,000 people, mm -hmm. uh, the subreddit. And literally more and more people are coming out every single day as, as D-Trans. Sure. And, yeah, I mean, I, like, I think all of us on the panel wish that there was a way, I mean, we wish that nobody was trans, right? That's a terrible thing to have to go through. But if, if since that's not the case, what, could there be a brain scan potentially in the future that, that targets people that we, we can know for sure if this person's going to be trans forever? And if that's the case, put them on puberty blockers right away. Well, there Do are everything also, right away. There are also but ways we don't know of that. like sussing people out who are likely to desist through just like making it a more gradual and involved process. Like, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but um, famously, like the Dutch have this like long drawn out system where like if you're nine and you say you're trans, you can start socially transitioning. If you're 12 and you've persisted since you were nine, then you can start puberty blockers. Then if you're 16 and you've still desisted, um, you can start taking HRT. And what's interesting about that case is that there's been a lot of studies on the Dutch model, and there's very low rates of reg regret among um, tr uh, people in, uh, who went through this, this uh, model of treatment. I, and I, think even that's as, good, I think that's a fair model. Even I, as I numbers, and, and even as numbers of people who have been <coughs> transitioning have skyrocketed, the numbers of regret have stayed the same, um, which is really interesting. So, In that specific model you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's actually kind of a, a good way to go about it. Because what we're, that's what, not what we're seeing with D-trans people. 
uh, in general. What we're seeing is people that had rapid onset gender dysphoria. Yeah, and yeah, and they I think had a whole bunch of their classmates that were claiming to be trans, and they just didn't want to be women, or they were lesbians, and they were butch lesbians, and they didn't want to be they didn't want to be les women, so they transitioned, and all of a sudden, oh shit, I have no tits. Yeah, like it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be like graphic, but like no, I think this that, is really happening. I think that your interpretation of of the sort of arguments that like you and Sean have been a levying is the more reasonable interpretation because like. Sure, you can levy these arguments like there's potential risks, there's potential for desisting, there's potential impacts on bone mineral density and so on. When I think of these arguments, uh, like I think of these as threshold raising arguments. Like sure, if successful, these should show that our threshold should be higher in terms of determining when we're gonna actually give a trans kid treatment. But the idea that because there are potential risks or uncertainties or drawbacks, that we shouldn't give them to any trans kid ever, no matter how many indicators they have that they would benefit from this treatment, that, that I don't get. Um, no, I don't, I, don't think that's, I don't think that that's how I feel. I just think that at the moment, if you told me this 10 years ago, I would agree with you fully. But at the moment, it seems like trans is becoming more and more of a trend and kids are becoming more and more sneaky and knowing exactly what they need to say to get what they want. And I just, I don't trust them very much at the moment. Well, and, if you and, have and like you a sort of, of, if you have like a sort of Dutch model, then like, I mean, if you, if a kid decides like, okay, it's a trend um, I, that I want to jump in on, so I'm going to, you know, say that I'm trans, they have to go through a lot of years of persistence. That's the thing. They don't think it's a trend. They, they genuinely believe that they are trans. Well, if they genuinely yeah. believe that they are trans and that belief persists through like years and years and years of escalating treatment, then Which like... Which is possible, but it also... They probably also, are trans It's also point, a scientific right? fact that your brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25. Like, I have a friend that literally thought that they were trans. And they did not physically transition. They still call themselves gender, gender queer. With the, to me, I can't stand that term. But as far as she's concerned, to me, it makes sense because she doesn't dress, quote, like a woman, which is technically sexist. But like, she wants to use that term for herself. That's not a problem for me. Sure. She, I, she did not transition. And if she did, she would have regretted it. And there are a lot of people like that. Right literally at the age of 25, which was kind of bizarre, that year, Gender, the dysphoria went away. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to disagree with you guys. I just, I think that there should be, um, I think we need to take into consideration, obviously there are going to be kids who are trans, who, um, who are, who hate their lives throughout, throughout their, you know, that stage where they can't transition yet. And I think obviously the, the best way to do this is again, heavy regulation. Mm -hmm. um, heavy regulation, obviously what you're saying is very true. There are a lot of girls who grow up hating their bodies, hating being a woman, hating operating through the world as a woman. And that itself- and I, I say that as, as one of yeah. those women that was that. Yeah, same. And, and yeah. so I think that, I think that there's, um, you know, that doesn't mean that they're, they shouldn't be seeing somebody for that, right? If they're going through their lives, hating interacting the world, being, uh, being as a woman, hating themselves as a woman, and they think that um, they're trans, but maybe they're not, they, they should still be seeing a doctor for something. Of course. Right? Of so, course. Yeah. With that, we'll jump to the last one, and then we're going to jump to the crime topics in just a moment. But first, should parents be informed if the child is gay? I think that the person who submitted this question, I think they're meeting from like a public school context, so I'm not sure. I've done a video on this. Uh, I think, if, again, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have a very different feeling about it than I do now. At the moment now, it, if, if a parent is being withheld that information, it seems more like a grooming tactic by whoever's withholding that information from the parent because 
Are you giving me the finger? Yep. Okay. Uh, classy. I think that, I, I don't know. I, I think that 10 years ago, it was a very different scenario. It's I really do. I think that right now, if you're being with, with if somebody is telling your child, some, if your child is telling somebody in the school system or uh, a therapist that they're, that they're trans or gay and they don't tell the parent, that seems a little bit off to me because I would say 95% of the time the parent isn't actually gonna care. That's because we're in the year 2022. Just 10 years ago, 2012, I feel like it was a little bit different. We still didn't even have gay marriage in this country legally. I would disagree with you. So I'm, go I'm going to disagree maybe in specific areas, liberal pockets, you know, uh, um, uh, that may be the case, <clears throat> but a lot of the times, depending on the student, if they're from a minority community, that's definitely going to be a case where telling the parents um, that the repercussions are going to be much higher. They're in a rural area, much more um, right-wing area. Um, even if the parents are accepting of other people being uh, gay, other people being LGBTQ, there's still the risk of them not being um, accepting of that child. And you know, the, the percentage of homeless youth that are LGBTQ is astronomically high. Um, it's just a huge percentage of them. Uh, so they're, you know, depending, depending on religious background, um, uh, all sorts of different compounding factors. I think that at the end of the day, um, I don't think it's right to out a child to their parent if they're not ready for that. Um, yeah. Especially with given the risk, like even in the best communities, if you come from a specific background, specific religious background or, or minority background, your, your risks of being kicked out of the house are gonna be that much higher, so. The, yeah, it's, it's a I mean, st statistically, the risk of being kicked out of the house is actually the most common in uh, urban areas, mm -hmm. uh, not suburban areas, yeah. not wealthy suburban areas like everyone else thinks. It's yeah. more common in black and Hispanic communities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a whole other issue. But I, I think, because I know a lot of people want to say, oh, it's very common with white people in, in you know, Mississippi or something. It's actually not that common. It, I would, it's I actually would most overwhelmingly common. say that yeah. actually the reason why we shouldn't be telling and outing children before they're ready is for specifically those communities, for those minority communities, because you don't know what they're going to do, right? Um, you, don't, you never know, uh, you know another person's culture. Um, you don't know if they're going to, um, you know, I've, known, I've had people, I've <coughs> known people who were, went to Pakistan and got married and came back, right? Um, I've known people who, uh, you know, whose parents, um, you know, just kicked them out of the house. So I think it's super important to think about the most marginalized communities um, in these cases before we make the decision to out a child as gay or trans or anything LGBTQ uh, to their parents. Um, uh, you know, and, and on top of that, um, actually, I don't, I don't remember where I was going with that. No, I think, I think that's, I think <laughs> yeah. it's a great point. I don't, I, again, I don't think it's, like, I wouldn't vouch, I, I wouldn't say that it's a good idea to just out all their, all these kids. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it comes across because these teachers are proud of hiding information from their parents. I, yeah, it I comes across as a little icky it's, to me. It's a I don't know if I would call it proud. I think, I think teachers have you know, students spend more time with teachers a lot of the time than their own parents, and they look up to those teachers, and, 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 those, and to feel like a student is confiding in you in something so integral in their life probably is a, a source of, like, you know, something that really means a lot to them.
right? Of course. Yeah. I would say it's a it's it's one of the this one is more complicated because you just said something about like them coming out as gay to a teacher because the idea is like I'm heavily in in invested in parents being in charge of their children at at their institutions of education and all that. But the idea is is that if you're a teacher and you get told this information, presumably in confidence, you tell the parent and then the parent throws the kid out, then it's a disaster. You've helped no child or anything like that. Right. But on the flip side, if you if if you told your, your teacher something that like increased your risk of like say committing suicide in the future, and they withheld that from the parent, and the issue was like anorexia or some kind of disorder in like that realm, not saying that being being gay is a disorder, and then they attempted suicide, and you continue to withhold that admit, uh, that information, or you told them then the parent's going to be pissed, and obviously they're going to sue the school. So it's like it's really a balance. It's really a balancing act. I don't know exactly like where. No, we're trying to figure on that it. out. Well, on that yeah. point, I think though, it's going to be context dependent, right? Yeah. Because like you said, right. you, you brought up the analogy, like, sure. So if there's a parent and their kid has like something that's gonna increase their risk of suicide and the parent wants to help the child, then like for sure the parent should know. But like, I think where, the, where that analogy is gonna break down is in like cases where a kid goes to their teacher, they're like, hey, I'm gay, but I don't wanna tell my parents because they're like violently homophobic. And in that case, telling the parents would actually increase the kid's risk of committing suicide rather than aiding the parents and helping the kid. Even, and I think that's, those are the cases where it's Even it's in the case with trans children, right? Um, uh, if, they, if a parent isn't accepting of that, uh, or if the parent starts um, you know, uh, micromanaging the child after finding out an information like that, even though, sure, there, there is a higher risk of like suicide rate within that population, I guarantee a negative uh, home life will increase that, like yeah, but, a whole lot. But you're lot. counting an awful lot on the person who can barely teach your kid math to make that determination. Like, if it, it, this, is where, this is where I draw the distinction between like, just like this kid is a gay person, which by the way, LGBT youth do have, that are just in the gay category, do have increased suicide risk. So like, it's really fuzzy there versus uh, the trans distinction. Because again, like it, the, the chances of somebody with gender dysmorphia uh, committing suicide are so much higher than if somebody has a regular form of body dysmorphia. And we would expect immediately for a teacher or anybody in the school to inform the parents if that were the case. So like, it really, like I heavily instinctually lead towards, uh, lean towards the parents in most of these circumstances. But like in the, in like the instance of like, your kid's a lesbian and they're like 16 years old and like they told you that they were a lesbian at school and they seem fine. I might be like, all right, uh, whatever. Like, it's not like, I don't care that much if you tell them. Yeah, the good, th the good thing is everyone on this panel gives a shit about the kids. It yeah. just, it just, we have different ways of looking at it. That's really yeah. what it comes down to. Uh, again, I, I, a good opportunity we might want to jump into because I do want to give at least a good amount of time to these prime topics and we haven't gotten to them yet. So we're a little bit behind. Prime? In particular, yay or nay on defunding the police? Nay. Nay. Nay, probably. Yeah, uh, I'm also going to say nay. Um, I think that the... Um, again, I don't want to like dump a bunch of studies, but I think the empirical literature is pretty clear that when you have more cops, there's less crime. Um, although that's not to say, right, that there, we can't like Fix the justice alter ways in course, which the cops do their jobs. Because one course. of the big factors that actually limits the extent to which more cops are able to decrease crime is when you have like less, um, less trust between the cops and their communities and also like cops spending a lot of their time doing a lot of jobs that are unnecessary and don't really work to reduce crime. 
Um, and there are all kinds of ways in which we can try to increase uh, trust and limit the extent to which cops um, are doing jobs that don't really effectively decrease crime. Um, so we could do this through like decriminalizing drugs. Um, some, some people propose like recruiting larger numbers of black and female police officers, de-escalation training, procedural justice training, federal oversight of police agencies, the use of non-lethal, uh, use of training in non-lethal weapons and things like that. Um, so I think that trying to improve the way that cops are doing their jobs and making them more trusted by their communities and so on is the better way to go in terms of reducing crime as opposed to like defunding the police and making there be less cops. Completely yeah. agree. Great point. I mean, also, how many how many uh, crimes you know uh, escalate because somebody is fearful of cops and they start running, right? So yeah, that's a very good point. Increasing the uh, the type <coughs> of um, relationship that they have with their surrounding communities is very very important. I would say almost no crimes escalate because people are randomly afraid of cops. Typically, they're doing something wrong and they know and, it and they run. And like <laughs> you, like Most people people say, you could divert resources away from cops that are doing stuff that is not productive into productive stuff like I'm in favor of good things and against bad things as well just so you guys know um, but like that doesn't really mean anything like yeah there are obviously better ways to like optimize the resources that we spend on police but in general we should not be decreasing the funding to police we should not be limiting them beyond scopes of reason as we've been doing in the last couple of years and we have the results for an anti-cop climate in this country to, that that speak for themselves like we saw a 30% increase in homicide after the George Floyd riots. That is the greatest year over year increase in murder, the most serious crime in the history of this country. And I know a lot of people like my friend Nuance Bro over there think that he could just defend himself because he just collects guns in his little mansion in, uh, in Houston. But like in reality, that's not a solution for everyone. Yeah, I think if anything, um, you know, either keeping it the same or even increasing funding to police might be good because uh, you're providing um, more training, more resources, things like that. So. It'd, be, it'd be nice if you could see it, if we would start seeing it more as a community service than a community policing. Yes. Because uh, people should trust police officers that are policing their community, right. um, and when when they can't, when they feel like they can't do that, or if there's an incorrect perception that they can't do that, then you know it's going to affect things. So. It's going to affect affect things like um, like if if people in the community don't trust their police officers, it's going to affect things like the extent to which they're reporting crimes as well, which is like a pretty important part of the yeah. equation. So. Yeah, like domestic violence cases, things like that. Yeah. You got it. How about ending cash bail? Who of you are for I think we I think we saw that uh, we talked about from New Yorkers perspective yeah I mean <laughs> I mean we literally just had this happen in New York over the last two years with our, our old mayor and the new mayor um, and they reversed their decision to, to end cashless bail no it's a state level law I, I would say I thought uh, he did decide or maybe you just talked about ending it and then didn't do it I, I would say that it, depending oh, on how you do a program like this it could it could make sense in limited circumstances but the way we see this implemented like in the state of New York is they list a bunch of crimes that you can never be held in jail for pre-trial which is absurd so like a lot of people talk about the cash aspect of it and criminalizing poverty and all that but in reality, what reform looks like is releasing people automatically, even if they're repeat offenders for crimes that are considered petty. And of right. course, we see increases in crime. So yep. especially give, in San Francisco, what was it like car break ins with cars? Yeah, Something or like, shoplifting, like insane shoplifting. We see these videos. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you want a system <laughs> where you give judges more power to to issue judgments on people who are arrested, 
then that's different from saying, oh, we're going to get rid of cash bail and just release all of these people. Yeah, so I think, again, I'm going to agree with you that it's going to um, matter on the way that it's implemented. I am very pro uh, ending cash bail, um, partly uh, DC because DC's been doing it since 1992, and they've done it really well. Um, and they have, um, they, they basically, uh, they basically um, have a uh, set of assessments, basically, that they make of somebody and their likelihood to, uh, to reoffend. To reoffend, yeah. And also, I think this is great because it's actually tougher on crime if you do it right. Because there should be no case where somebody can, uh, who's who's committed a heinous crime, can just get out because they can afford to post bail. A great example of this is um, you guys remember the Waukesha uh, uh, Christmas Parade massacre. Right. That guy. Was it twelve people? Uh, it was six people died, six people. and then 60-plus people were injured. Yeah. And that is an, a great example of somebody who should never have been let out on bail. Um, uh, he had The reason why he was able to do that was because he was out. He was able to make his bail, and then, um, and, and then he went on to, to commit this horrible massacre that is, you know, the trial is still going on right now. Um, you know, uh, so, so that, that's just like one example of, um, of ending cash bail, how ending cash bail can actually be tougher on crime and more effective towards crime than, uh, than the bail system. I'm just going to be agnostic on this question. I had to allocate my time across the various topics you gave me. Um, this is what I'm less confident on. I, I would say Darrell Brooks was released repeatedly by a soft justice system, and the reason he was able to make bail is because they set bail for him attacking his girlfriend, or um, yeah, baby mama, girlfriend, whatever, uh, and trying to hit her with a car, and they set his bail at like $1,000. And if you go to a bail bondsman, you're only allowed to put something like 12% down, and Darrell Brooks was one of these violent repeat offenders that had he been held pre-trial, because that was only weeks before, then he wouldn't have driven his car through 70-something people the, in, in a parade. In D.C., if that happened in D.C., he would not have been released because of the assessment that they do, I right? Mean, they assess... That, that it's so it's been, just a it's, different way of handling the crimes. Really, it's been really successful in D.C. They haven't changed it. And, um, and you know, they would assess based on his risk to commit crimes and based on his history, of, because he had a long history of crimes, um, he should have never ha had the ability to even have a bail set for him. There should be no reason for him to be out in the streets. There should be no reason for him. I don't care if the, the if you can say, oh, well, we can make it the bail really high. I don't really care. No, I don't think he should be uh, released on bail. I don't think he should have that ability. I don't think he should have that option. I yeah, mean, D.C. is not exactly the safest city in the United well, States DC, of America. But, but, but look, D.C., um, they have, the, like, based on, after they did this in 1992, they actually achieved better results from their system because they do they base it on like a scientific risk assessment yeah. uh, and they continually will modify that um, uh, in, in, in you know ongoing years obviously there are going to be a couple of people you know there are going to be a few cases here and there where um, uh, you know somebody is released and they do commit a crime but for the most part um, if you prevent people from even having a bail uh, you know, when 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 they really should not, they should not be out on the streets. Then this is a tougher on crime approach, and um, and and then there are tons of people who are sitting in jails for uh, for you know really small things who probably 
um, who probably don't need to, to be there. And I think that this is a, I think this is a much better approach because then we can look at people, look at their history, look at the type of crimes that they're doing and say, for sure, this person should not have the ability to bail themselves out. I think that's a good point. I really do. Yeah. You got it. This last one before we go to the Q&A is, should the drinking age or any age laws be changed for that matter? That's not how the question read in the DM you sent me, James. Yeah, I just realized that now. We have find it. So, should the drinking age be changed or any any, any other any age restrictions? Age laws in particular. So maybe like the age for age of consent, consent have yeah. sex, the age for whatever it might be. For a long time, I actually thought that maybe we should raise the age of consent to like protect more people. But then somebody made a really good point to me um, like a few months ago that like that would really just kind of raise the age of majority. And I don't know if that would be necessarily like good, I guess. So, yeah. Huh. I, I was going to say um, we should probably raise the age for voting to like 21, maybe even 25. Because, you know, Gen Z really blew it this last go around. Um, but also, I, I, I would like to point out that murder suspects do get released in the District of Columbia pretty often because, you know, you're, it, those databases oftentimes reference convictions. So you have people that are violent or accused of violent crimes, even if they have substantial evidence, that get released. So, Yeah, I think when it comes to setting, like, age limits for anything, whether that be like ability to give consent for sex or like drinking, um, you're just going to have to set some sort of arbitrary lines for practical purposes. Like when people think about the age of consent, like how much of a difference does it make in somebody's ability to consent, whether they're um, like an 18 year old or a 17 year old in 11 months or something like that. There's probably not that much of a difference, uh, but we have to set these sort of arbitrary lines because that's the only way we can enforce them. Uh, consistently uh, and having a society with those kinds of arbitrarily drawn lines uh, is better than one without them. Um, so I, I don't have a super strong opinion on like the absolute level with respect to these things. I guess my concern would be more about where the different age limits are for different activities. For me, it's like a consistency thing, right? Like it is kind of, I know this has been pointed out a lot, but like it is kind of ridiculous that you can't drink until you're like 21, but you can you know, serve in the military from the time you're 18. That seems like a weird indiscrepancy. Um, so for me, in, in reforming these laws, it would be about clearing up those inconsistencies and indiscrepancies rather than like raising or lowering the absolute age limit for these things, which I don't care much about. Just to respond to Sean's point here, um, uh, you can release people who are murder suspects. Does that mean that they're going to go out and reoffend? And actually, uh, uh, you know, I would respond to that and say, um, uh, when DC released, uh, based on their, their percentages of the people that they released, less than two percent were rearrested for a crime of violence. So I don't care. Long? I don't care if they're like a, a suspect in a case. What is the risk of them actually going out and committing? a crime again. If it's less than 2%, I think that's pretty good. 94% um, of the people they released, um, uh, uh, I believe, um, no, not 90%, 88% um, made every single court appearance. And 86% um, and were never arrested for any criminal offense of any kind. So I think those are pretty good results. Um, uh, I, I think that the DC just does it better than you guys. Sorry to say. Uh, well, <laughs> so. Well, you could you could find similar statistics in any part of the country. It's because most of the people who are arrested for things are arrested for minor things in the first place, 
and those people likely would have been released under no normal circumstances. What you have to identify is the people who would not have been released under DC's old system who are being released and their propensity to reoffend. Right. And so quoting me like a two percent when maybe they had like a four percent or three percent before it was doesn't higher really before. tell me anything. It was it was higher before. And I and again I would say that um uh, you know you need to like they they know and by the way twelve percent missing their court date is like not great. Well, you no, to, it's not. You have to great, chase down one out of not, every ten criminals. If, at least they're not going out and recommitting. If it's less than two percent going out and committing a violent crime, I think that's a pretty good rate. And again, DC continues to refine the way that they do these assessments. Um, and uh, you know, there's always there's always going to be like an element of risk when it comes to making a release decision before a trial. Um, but that's that's the price of the system that we have. Um, the only way to get a complete assurance of safety is to incarcerate everyone. And that's not, that's like completely not American, so. Okay, but now you're like posing zero risk of reoffending versus the alternative, which I is mean, not what I said. Well, I just yeah, said but you, I'm going to say I it's like the bail system. I, to me, I think is not hard enough on crime. In my opinion, I don't think it is. I think there are some people who should not get bail. Yeah, I mean, bail is a progressive reform. I mean, the reason you have a right to a speedy trial is the presumption was under English common law that you would be held in a dungeon awaiting trial. So the idea that you put down collateral in your place is quite progressive in terms of a policy uh, well, so yeah it's, it, it's, I, it's I, quite I literally it, not so. strict enough yeah. but i would like i said if you have if if most people who are arrested are released on their own recognizance and then they show up to court and they plead <laughs> down because it's for a misdemeanor or whatever then overall the the amount of people in terms of the percentages that reoffend are going to be low so if you tell me that it's still low because you're releasing a few more violent offenders that doesn't really tell not me what violent. I need to know. It's somebody it, it, like potentially violent. Not no in in DC. They Everybody's have, potentially They violent. have the risk. Uh, they have the risk assessment, and um, and it's again less than two percent go out and commit a violent crime. I think that's. I think uh, first off, um, I think if somebody has a history of violent crimes in their their past, probably the likelihood of them getting released is probably not going to be that high. They probably won't be assigned a bail, and I think that's a pretty good way to do it. I mean, violent crime isn't the only crime. Like, thefts are non-violent crimes most of the time, but they have victims. I don't care about violent crimes. I mean, I do, but I also care about crimes with victims. If you were saying that they commit victimless crimes, then I don't care because there's no victim. But yeah, if you release somebody and they continue to steal, then like, yeah, that's still a problem. Yeah, it's still, it's I not mean, violent, sure. it's but not, it's still it's, a problem. It's still a problem, but again, I would prefer a system that is harder on violent crimes um, rather than a, a, a and, and um, so a system that is harder on violent crimes that is makes it harder for for people who would commit these violent crimes to get out um, uh, than a system that is less hard on violent crimes um, and allows people the ability to get out. I, I just am going to prefer one, and I think that it, eliminating the, the bail system and reforming it and doing the risk assessment, I think, is a very good way to be harder on violent crime specifically. It might also be city dependent. Like we don't know. There's di different cultures in different cities. Maybe DC is, is going to be very different the way they the people yeah. that live there handle it. Yeah, and versus you know, people in California, you know, uh, yeah, which is why states have different laws. And we'll I think. Wrap this up pretty quick here. <laughs> So let's start with Justin.
No, I didn't say the teacher was grooming kids. I said it's. I said it could be seen as grooming, and I said it's. I said it's very. I think I said fishy. I don't remember what I said. I said it's icky. I think I said. I said it, it is icky. I think anytime you want to with, anytime you get a kick out of withholding information from somebody's parents or somebody's caretaker, it it seems. I said it. I said it. No, I did say icky as well. I believe. I think I said both. I think I said both. I think, I think grooming is the right word if that's actually what they're doing. You already have a word within their tribe described as indoctrination, which is what they use in critical race theory now. I don't know if it's indoctrination. The grooming word? Yeah. Uh, probably because it's a hot topic right now. It's a, it's a buzzword as far as people understanding what we're talking about. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily the well, right word unless it's actually what's happening. But and Justin's point is that you're not helping clarify what we're talking about. You're mystifying what we're talking about by using a buzzword that inaccurately describes the phenomenon in question. No, I don't think that's true. I think some cases it does describe accurately what's happening. I think the truth in some is we cases, don't know. But how of course, many? we don't it. know. We you, don't know. That's the point. That's why we're debating this. We don't know what's exactly what's happening. How can we know anyone's true intentions? Uh, I will agree with you and uh, with, the, with the point you're probably trying to make and say that it probably is less likely that teachers are trying to groom te uh, kids, uh, but I still don't think that makes it okay. Let's go to the nuance, bro. Um, bringing it back to the drag queen stuff, um, I'm sure we've all seen the videos of the different performances. You guys talked about how some of these were inappropriate. You've probably watched more than I have. Yeah, yeah, probably. That's uh, fun. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to know, of the ones that you've seen, do you think any of them warrant criminal prosecution and arrest? And if not, what would be the circumstance where you imagine that such a... So I saw a picture on social media being posted of um, they were saying that it was a drag queen, um, but it was actually a cis woman who was like in a bikini, who was, uh, who was like, um, you know, taking money from a child. Um, and I think, you know, it, like, it's hard to verify these things on social media. There are very significant things that, you know, that, uh, that are problematic that we shouldn't have children at. But, um, but uh, like, that's just an example. Like, even with that, I would be uncomfortable with a cis woman um, at a strip show stripping in front of a child, right? Uh, uh, so I think um, at the point, when does it become, uh, when, does, when is, like, criminal investigation on on the uh, on the table. I mean, they, I guess it would have to be if they were like being um, explicitly sexual towards have a child. I, you know, you've probably seen more than I have, honestly. I I have not, but I'm sure that they're out there. I'm sure that they're out there. So. there there's a video online circulating right now, I believe. Uh, even though Pride season's over, there was a video. I, I think it was a biological woman. Uh, I don't think it was a trans woman. Uh, that was on a stripper pole at a gay pride parade with a kid yeah. while she was wearing pretty much nothing. <laughs> so it's like, okay, slap a gay yeah. flag on it. It makes it okay. I, I disagree. I think you disagree with that as well. well yeah, which, is what, which is what you're that. saying. Yeah, yeah. So there I are some videos, not many. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, they're, I'm sure they exist. But yeah, that's a specific example that the cis woman who, you know, she's, she's stripping with a child like next to her. I don't think that's... Take, take that out of the know. gay pride event. Yeah. And, and it's not okay. Yeah. In any other scenario, it would not be okay. It probably yeah. shouldn't be there either. And it's making it's it's actually defeating the purpose of, of having gay rights. Yeah, and you know the conversations. Pride, the gay pride parades should be a family friendly event. 
you know, uh, LGBTQ people have families too. I don't, you know, I, I think we need to make the, we need to make these events uh, accessible for families. Why should it be family friendly? It hasn't, it wasn't family friendly for years and years it and was, years. Uh, okay, the DC and one has always all, been family friendly. all of a sudden, friendly. like, people are trying to make them into something that they're not. Like, depends you can have your fun and have it be it, for adults. It depends so on the one that oh, you go to. Yeah. The, like, the, again, the DC one is, is family friendly during the daytime there are a couple of dudes who walk around with like weird outfits but for the most part it's it's fr family friendly and then anything that's not family friendly happens at a nightclub later yeah uh, so yeah. yeah different cities do it different ways yeah Europe I, I agreed with help. um with Ariel earlier when she said that the better way to do it is probably have like a family friendly version and then like later on you could have yeah. a more explicit version that way everybody wins yeah and and I think the reason uh to to Sean's question the reason why we would want a family friendly version is just because there are probably a lot of lonely and isolated isolated LGBT kids and we want a way for those kids to be able to connect to a broader LGBT community and find like also kids that are straight that have gay parents yeah, yeah but what they, I'm they saying have families. what I'm saying is if you're gonna have non if you're gonna have non-family friendly things like you know then that's fine just don't bring your like don't bring your kids to it like yeah, don't bring them you're right yep Do you mean like legally or morally? Like under current law, does it warrant arrest? Yeah, that, those are legal things. But you said should warrant arrest. Should is is a prescription, right? It's okay. Yeah, legally, I don't I don't know the law. Morally, um, I I. I mean, there's an interesting question of who should be prosecuted, right? Because if it's an event that's like explicitly 18 and up because it's sexual and the parents bring their kids to that event, that's probably not okay, that's probably illegal. That if, should fall on the parents the, the in that The parents case. should be, yeah, definitely Yes, be that should fall on the parents. If, if it's a case where um, it's a family-friendly event and someone shows up and starts doing sexual stuff, then that, that, was falls against, on the, that falls on the performer. Right, then that falls on the performer. I think we should treat it like we see like the, the, you know, the random guy in the trench coat who like, you know, flashes people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah like if you're, in, like if you're in a nightclub, it's yeah. still really not okay, but I know, I know the point yeah. you're trying to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. We had a question in the very back. Uh, so actual justice warrior, you brought up that we should take into account previous arrests, but not convictions. No, I said a lot of these models, like they have a similar model to what she described in New Jersey. And they only take in convictions, but they don't take in like a pattern of arrests. So if you have a bunch of cases pending, then that wouldn't count because they're they're not convictions yet. So that would sort of be going against the presumption of innocence and very similar to red flag laws in, like, in relation to the first or second amendment right on guns. Would you agree with red so, flag laws as well? No, I don't agree with red I, I don't agree with red flag laws, but more importantly, it's just inaccurate to say that this goes against the presumption of innocence. The reason you have a right to a speedy trial and not a right to pre-trial release in the United States Constitution is because it was presumed that you were going to be held awaiting trial. So they wanted that period to be as minimal as possible. You being held pre-trial, if you go back into English common law, does not make you guilty, be, well, you're just awaiting trial. The reason we had bail in the first place is because you're putting collateral in place of yourself to ensure that you return to face uh, justice, to face your trial. So it's not a violation of your presumption of innocence to hold you pre-trial. Now, does that mean they should hold you for long periods of time? No. Does that mean that we shouldn't do reforms to ensure that you have a speedy trial? No, we definitely should do reforms, but they should be on that side, not the bail side, the speedy trial side. 
We have one last question, Marcos, and then we got to wrap up. Uh, I guess like the topic I thought it was going to be under is, uh, but what is y'all each personal definition of uh, progressive, and do y'all feel America is progressive? The de our definition of what progressive means. Um, well, I think, so one way to answer is just like, it's often hard, it, there are often these concepts which we have like a decent intuitive understanding of and we can sort of sort people into one box or the other in a fairly intuitive way, but then like precisely demarcating what exactly it means can be kind of difficult. But I mean, um, I would say that a progressive is probably just somebody who is willing to abandon um, social traditions and traditional values uh, in virtue of other moral considerations without much hesitancy. I agree with that. I think that's a really good, yeah, I think that's a really well, good way of putting it. I think the word progressive, if we're not talking about politics, probably should mean just the idea of being open to other possibilities and what you know. And also being open to the idea of being wrong and, and being okay with that. Yeah. And I wish that that actually tied into the, the, the way politics are more, but I don't think modern day progressives are very okay with being wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the, the difference between like a progressive and a liberal, like a liberal is, you know, open-minded, open to free speech, but generally they're gonna be in favor of like the more marginalized and all that, or like open to new ideas. A progressive is like more rigid, like they're, they're very economically authoritarian. Yes. Like that's what socialism is. And uh, they, they want to silence opposition because they believe that opposing ideas are, are considered like violence. Which so, is the opposite of the so word I would, progressive, I would, yeah. which is why I said it's, it's not really yeah. fitting. So, I don't know if I would associate with pro progressives with necessarily with like socialists though, right? Like, uh, like, yeah, you, there is a trend there, but like, well, on what well basis? Mo most progressives think that Bernie Sanders is a progressive and Hillary Clinton is not. And like the distinction factor is not, is not necessarily social issues. It's the fact that Bernie Sanders identifies as a socialist and Hillary Clinton, they would call Well, they also neoliberal. will call like Elizabeth Warren a progressive and she's not a socialist, right? <clears throat> probably there's like a progressive caucus and probably the vast majority of politicians who are a part of that caucus don't self-identify as socialists. In fact, I think Bernie Sanders is the only one I know of who does. I think there's one final question. I want to humor you. I saw the pain in your eyes. When the, what's your question, go ahead. Oh yeah, uh, this is yeah, right. right. Okay. Uh, so I, I kind of want to wind things back a little bit to the earlier issue where we were talking about gender-affirming care. And I think that this ties more largely into a broader discussion. Uh, but in particular, I'm a future practitioner, and something that matters to me a lot is one, it's great to see people kind of defer to valuing the opinions of these expert communities, these communities of experts. Uh, personally, something that concerns me is the extent to which, you know, these are not monoliths that exist in complete agreement, and very often there's going to be disagreement and even mistakes that are made. For example, uh, the recent walking back of the NHS's uh, take on gender-affirming care. And so I'm wondering if you all would like to add anything to any comments about not just bias within uh, medical communities, but other institutions as well. Sure, I think, um, you know, I, I think we've seen a trend. Um, so uh, the NHS we know uh, currently is like I think it has some funding problems. And I think that is part of the reason why they see so many issues there. But um, obviously, I think that the, like, the best way to practice medicine is through, um, uh, through regulation, through, through you know, making sure that you've taken all the steps to be as safe as possible. That's just how medicine is practiced. And I think a lot of the time, um, we argue about these subjects that really should be up to medical professionals and should be debated within medical professionals. And then we make policies 
that um, impact those professionals. And I don't think it's necessarily good for patient care. Um, I think I think like we need to start like really um, taking more uh, physician opinion, uh, physician you know conversation uh, in into play when we talk about making policy decisions on these things. Yeah, I, I think one of the worst phrases that has become popular in the American lexicon is like trust the science because it's so anti-scientific. Like you should be able to question ideas test hypothesis, I don't know what the plural of that word is, hypothesis is? Hypotheses. Hypotheses, thank you. And, then, and then be able to come up with better solutions. So what, what we see is that a lot of these countries that have leapt forward on certain forms of care, like even setting aside the gender thing for now, have like pulled back because that's what always happens in medicine. I mean, just go watch any news report where they say wine's good for your heart. And then like two weeks later, they're like, oh, actually wine is gonna make your heart explode. And then two <laughs> weeks later, you find out that it's good again. Like this is what happens. So you gotta like do the research over and over again, but not become wedded and not try to invest your ideology into practice. That's why I mentioned specifically gender affirming care because that sounds more like ideology than actually something that's scientifically rooted and scientifically based. And maybe something that we could agree on is like, um, if we want to produce a climate where the decisions about puberty blockers has come to through debates uh, between doctors and their different reads of the literature and so on, then we should probably try and create a um, climate where medical care is a lot more depoliticized. And I will admit that there are some on the left who do politicize this issue in an unreasonable way, like you know people who will you know, call you transphobic and say you want to genocide trans people if you even have any concerns or questions or reservations about like puberty blockers, but that's mostly just people on Twitter. I think in terms of people who are actually politicizing this issue in a deeply unhealthy and unproductive way is going to be like the Republican politicians who are trying to like ban medical practitioners from, um, you know, coming to the judgments about care uh, that they would come to. Um, in various states. And, and I would say that, you know, a medical... Just, I, forgive me, just to be sure that we wrap up in time, I want to hear from, I don't think we've heard from you yet, Ariel, and then we should, we should probably wrap up. Just what was the question again? Sorry. Oh, uh, just a comment generally on the potential for bias within institutions to kind of yeah. exist as a... Okay, uh, it's a... It's a very big topic. Um, I would say, I think, I, I agree with Sean, and I, I agree with both of them. Actually, I agree with everybody. <laughs> I, I think it, it, we're still learning, and I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different cases out there still, because being trans can mean so many different things. Uh, it, and it's also, gender dysphoria in general can vary. It, it, can, it can change, it can shift, it can morph, it can change your sexual orientation if you go on, if you go on hormones. It, it's, there's a lot of issues that come with it. Uh, I think, from what I from what I've seen, I think the only bias, I, I will I will agree with you, with him. I think he said uh, that there are there are Republicans uh, or conservatives, whatever you would call them, people on the right, people on the far right, trying to take away a, a actual health care from these kids that are actually experiencing gender dysphoria, that are actually transsexual, transgender people. Um, but I think that comes, I think I think it's a cause and effect because just based on how far the left pen, the pendulum has swung to the left over the last few years, we went from trans people need, uh, need access to healthcare to everybody's trans in a matter of like three years. And I think that's, that's why we're seeing uh, more issues than not. I wanna do a couple of quick <coughs> housekeeping things. 
Nuance Bro takes super male vitality. <laughs> Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.